Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the CFA UK In Conversation podcast. This is a show for investment professionals focusing on a whole manner of topics and interesting insights that are impacting our profession today. I'm Maha Khan Phillips, Editor of Professional Investor at CFA UK. Today we're going to be looking at the world of biotechnology. I imagine that there are few people on the planet who weren't aware of the impact of biotechnology during the COVID pandemic, as we watched in real time as vaccines were brought to market and innovations shifted the landscape. But for investors, it's a mixed bag. Valuations have struggled in many cases, business models are shifting, and we've seen quite a bit of M&A. We're also seeing tremendous innovation, and new and exciting developments are occurring all the time. Here to talk us through the world of biotech is Dr. Chris Kaw. Chris has been a portfolio manager with Bellevue Asset Management, the investment manager for BB Biotech, since 2014. Prior to this, he was a sell-side pharma and biotech equity analyst, and before that, a research associate at the Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences, ETH Zurich. He holds a PhD in chemoinformatics and computational drug design from ETH Zurich and an MS in bioinformatics from Goethe University in Frankfurt. Welcome, Chris. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for the lovely introduction. Let's start with the new therapeutic areas and innovations that we're seeing in biotech. Talk us through some of the developments that are happening today, for example, in genetic medicine. We have a lot of different developments across different therapeutic areas. And I believe one big area for sure is genetic medicines. Um, that ranges from orphan or rare diseases um, all over now trying to access larger patient pools. More frequent diseases by not necessarily modulating um, genes that are responsible or causing diseases, but actually genes that we could modulate to improve risk factors in these larger populations. Um, genetic medicines comprises a couple of different technologies. Uh, on the one hand, RNA-based uh, therapeutics, um, such as siRNA or antisensor nucleotides, that was the first wave. Then the more recently famous uh, mRNA technology. Um, and on the other side, we have the technology such as gene therapies, normally utilizing viral vectors. And as a uh, next iteration or next step beyond that, uh, gene editing, where we're looking to incorporate um, changes that sustain uh, inside the genome. And then there's ma many um, next iterations of these technologies, again, such as base editing, prime editing, and hybrid um, technologies such as RNA editing. So tell me um, about some of the stuff that we're seeing. So maybe as a layperson after COVID, it's been quite quite something to see, you know, all of these therapies and, and we're talking about it and we're seeing it in the media in quite a sort of profound way. But obviously, mRNA was was everywhere in terms of we all knew about something that we wouldn't have known necessarily known about if, if it hadn't been for the pandemic. But so is this is the sort of hype justified? I mean, are we are we really sort of about to leap into an incredibly new landscape in, in the world of genetics and genetics um, medicine? Or is, is this something that's been going on for a really long time, but we've all just got excited about it because it's been brought to our attention for the first time. I think in rare diseases, does that development has been happening the last 20, 20 to 30 years, arguably, um, in the different indications that we have there. But with, that's also where a lot of the newer technologies are explored. And we've had some tremendous progress there for individual patient groups, mostly smaller patient groups, but with very severe disease. Um, such as, for example, Spinraza by Ionis Pharmaceuticals in collaboration with Biogen. 
um, that have changed the treatment paradigm um, for spinal muscular atrophy. So there's many different of these smaller pa patient populations with severe disease that where we know the disease driver and we could modulate it um, through such a genetic medicine. And what's happened more lately, there is um, some of these technologies to have much broader application in the vaccine space is a is a special uh, part of the pharmaceutical industry that hadn't seen massive innovation um, for decades. And mRNA technology helped to put that to a new level. And in context of the pandemic, we're all very lucky that that they were ready, were ready to, or that the precedent develops that developments that were necessary. Um, had happened in the last 10 years, so that everything was in place to then conduct these trials at such an unparalleled speed and scope. It really was remarkable. And, and what does that mean for the future? I mean, we're seeing more interest and more development in, in vaccines. Um, I mean, I've looked at, I've been reading about vaccines and cancer, for example. What, what are some of the sort of really innovative stuff that's happening now that might impact us in like, say, a decade's time? And so the one development is that these to so Moderna and BioNTech in collaboration with Pfizer that these companies are pushing forward with large other trials and respiratory virus vaccines, but also going trying to develop vaccines that for viral diseases that um, weren't accessible until now, um, where the technology itself actually is uh, enabling um, the production of these vaccines. Um, this could be in latent virus vaccines, for example, EBV and CMV. Um, and beyond that, um, where we just got a the first ever um, randomized phase two trial that showed a um, risk reduction um, for a personalized cancer vaccine or any cancer vaccine, uh, Moderna showed this data in collaboration with Merck. And so we'll have to see if this is confirmed in phase three and in which other indications this could be taken forward. But this could be a big sec second application uh, field uh, for this technology. And the competitor of BioNTech has a collaboration there with Genentech also. So the whole field can now take that step from infectious diseases into um, the cancer vaccine space. And then there's a third big group, which would be the traditional um, genetic uh, medicines applications, so rare diseases. And there's a different way to tackle that with mRNA technology. It could be coding for gene editing machinery for permanent changes, or in a first instance, just directly code the protein that's missing. Um, so those are the three, the most immediate value I think can be extracted from these um, vaccine technologies. A, for new high value vaccines where we don't have any um, pre prevention vaccines for, or prophylactic vaccines for, and then maybe improve on vaccinations on, on other attributes such as combination, for example, in the respiratory field. Um, an example is, we have the COVID vaccine, we have flu vaccines. Um, there's now RSV vaccines uh, about to come on the market or, or just entered. Could we do a combination vaccine with a single shot, which then would have large value, I think, for the entire population. Because suddenly when you're treating or trying to um, inject multiple, millions of people, then this actually plays a role for the healthcare systems. That's really interesting. And does that mean we're going to enter a world or we are entering a world of sort of hyper-personalization of medicine? In the vaccine space, I would say that's not hyper-personalization. That's uh, probably stratified by risk factors such as age, um, predisposition, et cetera. Um, in, the, in the cancer treatment field, yes, this is actually individualized therapy. It's not even, they used to call it personalized therapy, but we're really talking about taking an individual tumor out, sequencing it, 
predicting the new uh, the new antigens, building a vaccine according to those mutations onto an mRNA and then re-injecting that into a patient while giving the standard of care. In that case, it was immunotherapy. Amazing. And one of the things that you and I have talked about in the past was the obesity crisis and the, the drugs that we're now seeing in the market. Um, talk us through a little bit about what's happening in that space. And obviously, that's been a very big interest to investors as well. That space has basically been revolutionized now over the last decade. Um, I think with uh, everybody's aware, I think of Ozempic and Vigovi um, and Terzepatide um, on Mondaro that's approved for diabetes, but not yet for obesity mainly being driven by big pharmaceutical companies, so Novo Nordisk and Lilly. Um, and we've taken a big step up there from, I think, the first generation anti-obesity medications that we had. They really had next to no effect, three, four percent body weight reduction. And that first, the second generation, um, liraglutide, one of the first GLP uh, agonists, GLP-1 agonists, and saw around, them, depending on the study, between five to maximum 10. Um, percent body weight reduction. Now we're talking about 15 to 20 percent weight reduction plus. And suddenly this now has the efficacy that um, we wouldn't need to actually help people lose a lot of weight and then move on to diet and lifestyle uh, interventions to sustain that body weight loss. Gosh, such an interesting, all these developments are so interesting. It's a really fascinating world out there. Um, but now sort of switching to sort of what investors should should know about this space. First of all, what's happening with business models in this space? Well, there's different types of business models for sure that apply for rare diseases, I would say. And then the classic one used to be oncology. Um, most of those relied on garnering fairly high per patient prices because of the value they provide um, and the smaller volumes of patients affected but they have severe disease. And now a lot of these technologies are trying to broaden up and basically create medicines that are applicable to more, um, more patients on the one side. And then the question is, if this is a platform, then you could iterate um, with a lower interpolating risk between the different projects. Um, but that's a paradigm that has been established a long time. But a lot of these biotech companies are reliant on is, of course, capital. And with increased... Um, interest rates that we're seeing a lot of them have been squeezed due to the financing situation and some of them had to restructure a lot of them had to restructure especially in the smaller and mid-cap companies and look and they're looking for alternative sources of capital um streamlining their operations prioritizing their pipelines so that change has already occurred and it's still occurring so what does that mean then for or sort of um, outlook for investors who are thinking of allocating to this space or who are already allocating to this space? It could be actually a good opportunity now, you could argue, because that impact has been estimated and there has been also some changes in the global reimbursement framework, uh, specifically through the Inflation Reduction Act, Act in the US. I think politically that was born out of the observation that the US pays a, a lot, lot or a lot higher prices than other industrial nations, especially Europe, for a lot of drugs. Now that's not the case for every every drug, but in the rare disease setting, it's a little bit closer. Um, but still the US market is the most attractive market globally. And especially from the Democratic Party side, the idea was, okay, how can we bring those, down those prices? Especially considering that CMS, so in, on the one side, got the government is probably paying around 50% of those drug costs. 
and the IA was aimed at structuring that um, on different scopes that there were two components of that. Uh, one was so-called inflation rebates that prices couldn't be just increased no matter what, but that there's actually a penalty to that. Um, then the second one is around exclusivities and giving, giving um, Medicare negotiation power or creating a negotiation process um, in Medicare populations for part Medicare Part B and D. And that overall is hoped to um, generate certain cost savings um, over the next decade. On the other hand, there's also some positive aspects of that. Um, the first time there, the out-of-pocket spending will be kept for certain patients, and one could argue that should increase adaption and um, compliance of patients, and therefore improve access overall over the entire population. So it's a there's a lot of moving parts in there, but net net this was perceived as more negative for the industry initially, and the fear was also is this a the slippery slope basically to continue. And we hear that we're hearing that rhetoric, of course, from some um, parts from the U.S. Um, if that was only a start, and now we're going for launch prices, and at the end it could be something or the the idea of those um, that those um, people is probably to create something more similar to what's happening in Europe, where you have single-payer systems sometimes. Um, organizations trying to evaluate what the value of medicines is. Um, well, it would be a little bit contradictory to that free market um, thought that the US pharmaceutical market is structured around. And there's several lawsuits also ongoing now in opposition to this IRA in if this actually is a negotiation or if this is uh, it's imposing prices onto the players in, in the pharmaceutical industry. So as you say, lots of moving parts there. Yes, definitely. And what does that mean for sort of valuations and um, the future? Well, I think as, as we understand this process now, how this negotiation process will happen in the US, that will lead to more certainty because unpredictability because we understand that there's already been a draft guidance by CMS final draft guides, how they're looking to implement this, what parts they're trying to incorporate. So I think we will garner more and more clarity on how the process works, which drugs will be selected and how, and how companies can op optimally, or the industry can optimally set up um, to adjust to, to these changes. And that increased um, visibility should actually help investors. Thank you. And are there any other sort of public policy or regulatory elements that investors should know about? Yes, the European Union has also started a process in revising um, their market exclusivity adjudications for, I think, biologics versus small molecules, et cetera, and new chemical entities. Um, that's not completed, that's in process, but um, there was also considerations there on reforming that because that hasn't happened, I think, in 20 years. So again, more moving parts. Yes, more moving parts. Yeah. But but all this uncertainty, would, at least in part, that's factored into. And that's why we've seen a lot of these smaller and mid-cap companies. And we've seen um, their share prices uh, deteriorate tremendously. Not of all of them, but like on average, um, depending on the field, of course, that they're in. And, and what is the outlook for M&A? So we've seen M&A pick up with uh, certain deals. Um, there's also a caveat to that because some of those deals were larger, such as uh, Amgen Horizon. And it looks like FTCs, as it has uh, been speaking out, as looking maybe to try to intervene more often. Um, 
in fear of how market dynamics may look uh, if there's more consolidation. Um, so we've seen a couple of deals not peak at the peak level that we were used to. Um, we hope that that's going to pick up based on A, valuations have been basically halved or more. And we still see fundamentally good progress on the technology side, on the asset side, on the clinical side. And and the, the other big driver is, or the other two big main drivers for big pharma is A, they still have a lot of um, capital or cash left to spend and they need to because um, significant parts of their pipeline will go over a patent cliff over the next 10 years. And for some of these companies, that's 50 to 70% of their top line. So they need to replenish large amounts, but that's an ongoing process for them. They're used to that. It's a little bit cyclical also. Um, I think that need of replacing those patent cliffs, fairly large um, cash resources from different sources, right? Pfizer from their COVID business, for example. And then companies having lower valuations, um, but fundamentally still being intact. And that could, the question is, are those more late stage deals? Are there more, those more early stage? So will those be acquisitions or will, will those more be business development and license agreements? Um, for the last two, three years, I would argue we've seen more business development license agreements. So only lock-in of value for the investors, of course, in M&A, because then the question is not, what does the corporate, with the BD money that it receives, um, that it keeps on spending this money, is it attributing it according to, or allocating it according to what investors' mind is like? Sometimes we're disappointed there, uh, how that money spent maybe on projects we wouldn't or in a way that we wouldn't. So the only realization, direct realization of value that we can achieve is through M&A. And that has been not as, as impactful over the last uh, three, four years as it was prior to that. And, and are there any other sort of topical trends and themes that we should know about? Well, there's a lot of themes, I think, and a lot of different diseases. Um, I think the genomic medicine, genetic medicines part is for sure a big driver um, on the rare disease side, but also where we could extend this. Oncology remains still, I, I argue, the, one of the largest investment markets in the private and public side. Neurology has um, started picking up and is getting close to funding in, uh, to oncology, um, driven by, A, I think that whole, the whole, um, the whole focus on dementia, especially Alzheimer's and the need that's going to happen through the aging society. We're also taking new approaches and novel approaches to neurology, similar to what we have done with oncology, um, focusing on, on genetics, focusing on risk drivers, and how can we modulate them, either through genetic medicines or also through small molecule classical chemistry, trying to understand the Disease, diseases better um, through basic research and identify the targets. But so they're really taking target-based approach under the scope of precision medicine. So neurology is reliving a, or having a, how do you say, a revival there um, again. And what about AI? Is it transforming things rapidly? Yes, I think that's happening across the value chain. And of course, there's in different segments. Um, on the one side, on the drug discovery side, I mean, that's what I studied originally 10 years ago plus. Um, there we were, you could say those research groups were pioneering it. Um, so this is not something completely new. I think now it's being more and more, and more entrenched in, in companies and, and even big pharma. 
but there's some companies that have exclusively been set up um, with the purpose of computational drug discovery, either from a machine learning perspective or from a physics-based simulation perspective. But there's many other parts of the value chain where machine learning or the more popular term AI can be integrated in the process that could be from manufacturing to um, patient selection to running the trials. Um, so it's across the entire value up to uh, commercialization, maybe to identify patient populations or buckets of patients um, within different parts of the country. We're looking at all companies in the field, but we're specific, uh, specifically interested in the ones that are applying this for to be differentiated either on the discovery side or on the development side. That's so interesting. And I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you, Chris, is if we were having this conversation in 10 years time, what would the world look like? I mean, am I just getting too excited about some of the innovations that we're seeing? Or are we having seeing sort of some real development and growth that's going to really change things? Yeah, I think that if we keep up the pace of innovation there, and I think that's important that that will continue to be rewarded, that pace, then in order to also generate returns to get the cattle back to reinvest that, then I think we're on a good trajectory. Um, we know the impact of preventative medicines, and we have a whole bucket of new vaccines that we can develop. So pharmacoeconomically, that can have tremendous impact for society. And on the cancer side, where those pharmacoeconomic um, equations are a little bit more difficult, but we could be entering the next phase of immunotherapy there. Um, on the targeted oncology side, anyways, I, I think for every indication, all these technologies that we have and the the synergy of information technology and biotechnology on the other hand, that's been already coupled, I'd say, for last decade, last five to 10 years for sure. And how that gets entrenched closer and closer, I think that can improve the probability of success and maybe also open the scope of where we can apply different types of technology. And that should create tremendous value for, for individual patient populations. But if you think about those broader vaccine markets also, uh, it should create broad economic benefit for our societies. Well, I really hope that happens and I'm excited to see that happening. Well, thank you, Chris. That was really insightful and informative and so much happening in the space. I can't wait to I can't wait to see what's coming and what what innovations uh, come in the future. I'd love to talk to you again in a few years' time and and have this discussion and see where we are. And thank you to everyone for listening. Remember to look out for the next episode of our In Conversation podcast through the usual CFA UK email and social media channels. You can also subscribe so that you don't miss an episode through CFA UK's SoundCloud channel or Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks.